Thanks to the Karis for um, that gospel reading um, from the Gospel of Mark. Um, we're continuing a series this week um, uh, that we've started last week, and it's going to run through January, right up to Lent, actually, in, in February. And it's an epiphany series called Look for the Light. And it's helping us to do just that, to look uh, for the light that is Christ in our lives, to learn to pay attention to the divine and to God and what he might have for us as we look to Christ, as we meditate upon the life of Christ. Um, we're currently in this season that the church calls Epiphany, one of the oldest uh, Christian feasts or festivals celebrated by the church. And the word Epiphany and what this season represents, it, it means to make manifest, to make known, uh, to be revealed. And so Epiphany is a season when we as Christians together, we consider um, what God is revealing to us through the reality and the revelation of Jesus, um, through his life, through his miracles, through the parables that he taught, through his healings, and all the challenges that he brought, and also the invitations that he brought um, to us as we read of his life in the Gospels, and as we commune with him now by the Spirit. Um, Epiphany is helping us as a people um, bridge between Jesus' life so it's helping us build a bridge between Jesus' life and our lives through paying attention. Look to the light. As a church, we walk through these seasons every year. And um, with all the stories of the seasons, whether it's Advent or Christmas, the prayers of the seasons, the focus of the seasons. And if you joined with us last week, you'll remember that I used this comparison of the, the church seasons a little bit being like re-watching old movies, re-listening to old music, favorite music, re-reading old books. And in a sense, every experience of the re-reading or the re-watching brings something new. We discover something new. We pick something up new every single time. Despite knowing these stories, these stories intersect with our lives and um, our lives just as they are today. Um, and so they reveal something new to us. And in a way, that's very, very similar to our lives as Christians in, in the church as we move through the seasons of the, of the church calendar and our lives intersect with these stories again, there will be something new. So my prayer is that in this Epiphany 2021, that um, God might speak to us in new and life-giving ways, that, that the stories that we look to will intersect with our lives today as we are living through all that we're living through. And that, in a sense, Christ will be revealed to us anew in a new way. So I trust that that is your prayer too. I've been uh, watching a lot of Star Wars over the last two weeks. Um, and uh, it's reminded me again of, of the main character, Luke Skywalker, if you know uh, Star Wars, and the hero's journey that he went on to become from, from being this normal person living on, if you know Star Wars, living on the planet of Tatooine to becoming initiated into the Jedi and then becoming a fully-fledged Jedi master who saves the galaxy from the Empire. It's a, it's a brilliant story, and it's told over, in a sense, nine different movies. Um, but every story has a beginning, isn't that right? Every story has a beginning. And, in, and as I say, in that f first movie, uh, A New Hope, we meet that, that man, Luke, and he has grown. His life has begun, but Luke Skywalker's mission has not started. The journey is only just beginning. And um, as he handles that first lightsaber, he's initiated into his destiny, and so his journey 
starts. His life had already started, but that is the moment of initiation. That is when his mission started. That is when his destiny began. In a sense, every story has its origins. Every story has its beginning. Today, in a sense, we are engaging with the beginning of, of Jesus' story, of Jesus' mission in the world. From the, the passage that Caris just read in Mark uh, chapter 1, we, we read about the beginning of Jesus. Not his life, he, he was 30 years old at this time. As we looked last week, the Magi visited Christ at his birth. But this week, we see the beginning of his mission. And his initiation in, um, into this mission comes with his baptism in the River Jordan. In fact, the introductory words of Mark chapter 1 capture this so well. They say that the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, those are the opening words of, of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus' life had begun, as, as we were saying. He had lived this normal life for 30 years, living in relative obscurity in Nazareth, working as a woodworker, as a carpenter, living a normal life for 30 years, but things were really about to change in this moment and in this story that we've been hearing from in Mark's gospel. And around this time, there was another man called John. John, who's referred to as John the Baptist, we've been hearing about, and he started to preach about the kingdom of God being near. A wild man living in the desert, eating locusts and wild honey, dressing in animal skin, and preaching about the coming of the Messiah. And he's drawing people out to this, to the wilderness, to hear him preach, and to hear him talk about this countercultural new way of living, uh, this countercultural new kingdom um, that God was coming, uh, was bringing. And, and John the Baptist, as he's preaching and he's gathering the people around him, he speaks of one who will come that is more powerful than he Someone whose strap, who, who, the straps of, of his sandals, he would not be worthy to untie, are the words of, of John in the gospel. John says, I, will bapt I baptize you with water, but he, speaking of this one, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here we have this bold snapshot, as it were, of John the Baptist's prophetic ministry of preparing the way for the Christ, for Jesus to come as, as Israel's Messiah. Uh, and the words of uh, Isaiah capture this mission so well that every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Remember, the Jewish people had expectations. They had hopes and dreams. At that time when John the Baptist was out in the wilderness preaching this message of the kingdom, the Jewish people at that time were living under Roman occupation. They were living under the rule of Caesar and yet believing that one day God would send a Messiah and change their fortunes, that he would deliver them from the Romans in a similar way, perhaps to the way he delivered the people of God from the Egyptians in the Exodus. And, in, and indeed, the God, their hopes would be that God would build uh, Israel up to be a great nation again. They had these big hopes and dreams of salvation coming. That was the context. But in the meantime, they were living in Rome under Roman rule, under Roman occupation. And so when this wild, this wild man in the desert preaching about the kingdom of God is near and kingdom of God is coming, 
then people were really ready to listen, and he grew a crowd. John the Baptist was actually the cousin of Jesus. He was born of, of Elizabeth, who was, who was pregnant around the same time Mary was pregnant with Jesus. And he's out now living in the desert, outside of the system, outside of the system of the empire, um, living in his own way. Um, and he's carrying the hope of the world that a messenger was on the way, that the beginning of good news. And this is profound before we move into the story any further. Because in the Gospel of Luke, telling the same story, this is how Luke introduces that, that um, uh, the story of John the Baptist. Luke says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother, Tetrarch of Etruria, and Traconius, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, I'm trying to get those words right. During the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So before we, before we move too quickly to, to Jesus' baptism, let us not rush over this introduction to John and this message that he was preaching. Theologian and author John Shea points out that the opening sentence of, of Luke 3 is a scathing theological judgment on the Roman and Jewish political leaders and the religious establishment because the word of God bypassed all of them. The word of the Lord does not stop in palaces or in the temples. Instead, it searches out a priest's son who is also a prophet and finds himself in the desert. And this desert is the place of purification and inner scrutiny far from the, the mechanisms of power. God's light is actually found in the most unlikely of places. That is the context in which we see John the Baptist living wild in the desert, preaching about the kingdom of God is near. We see that the word of God bypasses all of the rulers of the day, speaking of, of Caesar, speaking of Herod, speaking of Pontius Pilate, speaking of the Roman rule. And here we find God working in the life of this wild man in the desert, preaching about the good news, the beginning of good news. God's light is found in the most unlikely of places. God does not operate through the normal channels of power. God is working through the wildness and the weakness of those completely yielded over to the Spirit, open to the voice of God. And it's a sobering observation for those of us who are maybe church leaders or even political leaders or, in a sense, those that are part of the establishment listening on, perhaps like the Jewish people at the time of the story, you know, we hope for Christ to come in, in power and majesty and in the power and majesty of a king that knows exactly what to do for his people. And perhaps in a sense, those people at the time were, were hoping that Christ would come and make Israel great again. And yet this passage reminds us that that's not the agenda God's about at all. God comes in the most unlikely places and in the most unlikely ways, bypassing the corridors of power and coming to a man like John the Baptist and into 
um, Christ who uh, comes from the backwater town of Nazareth in humility and in weakness. These are the ways that God works. And so I suppose in this epiphany season, as we think about these things, as we meditate on, on these verses, we look to the light that is not found in the power structures, in the system, or in the power struggles of this world that humanity makes, but indeed we look for the light that's found in the darkness and in the wilderness, in the desert, in the outskirts, or on the margins of our society. That is the way that God works. And this is sobering because <clears throat> if you're like me, maybe you've been following some of the events in the U.S. over the past few weeks. In fact, over the past few years, I've been following it. I'm sure you have too. And in a sense, what is most angering and sad about all of that is not necessarily the conspiracy theories, not necessarily the failure of political leaders, or even the actions and words of the president. But as I look to that situation, I'm saddened by the failure of the Christian church and its leaders that have succumbed to the idol of political power and nationalism and been complicit in all sorts of evils and racism and bigotry and hypocrisy. This is what happens when the church confesses or confuses the ways of God with the ways of man. This is not how God works. And it's not the way that power works in the kingdom of God. Love rules in the kingdom of God. And I think here in Northern Ireland, we can be perhaps tempted to, look, to be a little bit self-righteous and yet we forget the legacy um, of, of religious leaders and sometimes the church in our own troubles here in the pursuit of power, in the pursuit of nationalistic power and ambitions, all guised in the name of God. And so the reflection this morning is the word of God comes through Christ, not through Caesar, through weakness, not through power, through love, not through fear, through sacrifice, not through domination. And we always need to remember the ways that God works in the world confounds us often and he invites us to live this way of sacrificial love and humility in a, in a power-hungry world and, we, and to live it at any cost. Here in the story, as we move on a little bit, we see John baptizing people in waters of repentance. And it's here that Jesus, as I said, is 30 years old, has made his way to the River Jordan to be baptized by John. You can imagine John's face when he sees Jesus coming down the banks of the River Jordan through the crowds of people and begins to wade through the waters of the river as he moves toward him to be baptized. If John was preaching repentance and if Jesus was the divine in human flesh, then, then why is Jesus needing to be baptized in the waters of repentance. And in a sense, here we see the beauty of the incarnation of, of this truth that Jesus is Emmanuel with us, identifying completely with us in our collective mess, in our wayward ways, and choosing to stand with humanity and its need for repentance. Remember, repentance means a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of way, a 180 degree turn. It's, it's a rejection of destructive ways, of illusionary ways, and it's, it's a choice to move towards the way of love and the kingdom 
of love found in Christ. And so this is the scene we see. And at this moment of Jesus' baptism, we read this in Mark. It says this, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son with whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Beautiful words when we see the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all interacting in this moment as Jesus is baptized. And this is Jesus' initiation into his mission in the world, into his, into his work of, of truth and all that he was going on to do. This is Jesus beginning that mission. But before he had done anything, before he had earned anything, before he had worked for anything, he receives the affirmation of the love of the Father. He receives the affirmation of the love of the Father. He, he stands in his belovedness. The identity that Jesus stands in comes from his Father, and he stands as the Son of God who, whose Father loves him so very much. And the Spirit descends on Christ in that moment. And I wonder, as we think about our propensity to confuse the way God works in the world and our own identities, I wonder, do we allow God sometimes to make us aware of all that is within us that is a blockage or is an impediment to Christ coming in our lives? Are there like agendas and identities and hopes that we have that have led us away from our belovedness, from our identity? Do we forget who we are? Or today, Redeemer, do you know that you're loved? Do you know that you are beloved? Do you know that you're a child of God? Before you do anything, before you earn anything, before you do any work in this world, you are loved as a child of God. And we've spoken already about the danger of thinking that God moves in the ways in which the, the world moves, perhaps through political might or power. And we've spoken of uh, often the failures of, of often even churches and Christians to adopt these nationalistic agendas, these idols, even here in, our, in the troubles here, whether it's in the US, but in our own personal lives too, there is a temptation to take on these identities and these agendas that do not bring life to us. And as followers of Christ, we, there is a challenge in this epiphany season as we meditate on this story in the life of Christ to turn, to, to repent of those um, choices, to turn towards Christ and to live fully into our baptismal identity as children of God, knowing that we are loved. This is the bottom bedrock of who we are. We are children of, of God and we are loved. And that is our identity. We're citizens of heaven. More significant than anything else we might do today is to consider our willingness to turn, to repent, to, to choose the kingdom of love over the kingdom of the world, to change our minds, to make a choice, to move towards Christ, to, to let Christ come and enter into our lives again, to set down those identities, whatever they may be, whether they're identities we've spoken about this morning or whether they're 
there are other identities that we have that do not lead to life. And indeed, remember that we are beloved children of God and enter into these waters of baptism and find our souls cleansed and healed and find ourselves loved in the Father. Jesus came to announce to us that an identity based on success or popularity or power is a false identity. It's an illusion. And loudly and clearly, he says, you're not what this world makes of you, but you are a child of God. Romans 8 says, for those who are led by the Spirit of, of God are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are God's children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This is an amazing revelation as we look to the light in this epiphany season again. The spiritual life requires a constant claiming of our true identity. And our true identity is that we are God's children, beloved sons and daughters of a heavenly father. And Jesus' life reveals this mysterious truth to us. After that voice that spoke over Jesus, that he was beloved son of God and so uh, well-pleased, um, after that voice spoke over Jesus and his true identity was revealed and declared to him that he was a beloved of God. And as the beloved of God, Jesus' work in the world was to help all people come to discover and claim their own belovedness. That was the work that Jesus was about. Having received his, the affirmation of his belovedness from the Father, his work in the world was to help all people discover that they are children of God, that they are loved of God, and to step into this life pursuing this kingdom of love. So Redeemer, this morning, I want you to know in this epiphany season, as you look to the light, as you look for the light, know that you're loved. Know that God the Father is well pleased with you. Know that Christ is wanting to help you understand and discover again your belovedness as sons and daughters in the kingdom of God and the family of God. Let us turn from fear towards love. Let us turn from selfish ambition and selfishness towards self-sacrificial love. Let us turn from the ways of the world to the ways that God works. Let us set down striving and enter into the rest of God, let us look to the light of our salvation and nowhere else. Let us see the divine life found in Jesus and his way and let us follow him. Let us turn from, from worry and fear and let us trust in the goodness of God. Let the Spirit baptize us afresh in our identity as children of God. We are beloved. And let us remember that God is at work in the most unlikely of places and in the most unlikely of ways and that he is with us.